As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The firstborn of thy sons shalt thou give unto me. Yikes. Yikes indeed. I mean, if I'm reading that correctly, that cannot mean what it seems to mean, can it? You're supposed to redeem your child so that it does not get sacrificed. It's like, why not just not have the commandment to sacrifice them in the first place. If, if anyone is under the misapprehension that we are claiming this is something we should be reinstituting, I don't think they understand our podcast very well. Hey, everybody, I'm Dan McClellan. And I'm Dan Beecher. And you are listening to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where we try to increase the public's access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and combat the spread of misinformation about the same. How are things, Dan? Things are great. Uh, you and I just got back from a, a, a trip to Denver where we learned about how to podcast. We'll maybe do it right one of these days. We're getting uh, there. We're, 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 we're getting there, slowly but surely. <laughs> Uh, so that's great. We I had a good time. I hope you did as well. I did. It was uh, it was a good time. I'm glad you talked me into it. Uh, productive for us, yeah. and uh, we'll have we'll have some updates in the future about uh, uh, new about new directions. Yeah, not changing the content no. uh, at all, but um, we're but going I, to hopefully be able to improve the quality uh, and the reach of. Our podcast. I unfortunately will be fired from the program. <laughs> but, uh, other than that, everything should stay the same. Yeah, and um, and yeah. Other than that, uh, things will be uh, will be uh, awesome. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, hey, we got a great show coming up. Uh, we're 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 going to stick to Exodus. We're going to have some fun yeah. in uh, in one of the Bible's uh, weirdest books. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's. Dive into that. Okay. Okay, so our first segment is uh, entitled, That's History. And really, the question is going to be, is that history? Yeah, We're gonna talk it's a about big question. The Exodus narrative, uh, Moses, the, uh, the enslaved Hebrew peoples uh, taking off from Egypt, and all of the details that surround it. Yeah. It's How it's much? something that I've wondered about a lot. I'm very glad that we're getting into this because as you read Exodus and mm-hmm. uh, and I have done this story and it's a story we're all familiar with, right? Cecil B. DeMille gave us all a a wonderful if fanciful primer on uh on this story of, you know, the 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 Hebrew slaves in Egypt uh going through a whole bunch of stuff. Yep. God saves them. And uh I don't know. Saves is a pretty strong word when you see what happens to these people who then are wandering in the desert for 40 years. Yeah. It doesn't and, they don't feel very saved a lot of the time. Yeah. Cecil B. DeMille gave us a great representation of that. And then Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey gave us a great soundtrack to that. <laughs> uh, that was the area era in which I grew up. And I have and I am not even joking when I have heard people in uh like Sunday school classes talk about how Moses became brothers with the Pharaoh and he gave him his ring because he loved him so much. And I had to be like, um, you're thinking of the Prince of Egypt? That's actually not in uh, the book of Exodus? That's, that's not one of the things. Uh, that's not an actual Bible thing. So wait, that's an interesting point right there. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille just made that part up. Is that right? Like the, 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 the I don't know what raised... role Cecil B. DeMille had to play in the production of the Prince of Egypt. No, no, but, no. I'm um, saying, comes... I'm, I'm saying the, the being raised as a, as a prince in Egypt part. And, no, uh, like... no. There's, um, I guess in there's... the book of Exodus, it talks about, um, him being raised as, as okay. the, uh, one of the Pharaoh's own wives, oh, children. Right. Um, okay. So, that yeah, part's but, real. but they're, yeah, but they're the, expanding but the ring on is, that. The ring was, was yeah, just a cartoon. 
Yeah, they're adding details and and things like that to uh, to the story because they got to flesh it out because it is a pretty bare bones narrative at the beginning. You don't really get much in terms of detail. Well, and the other part is that um, the details that you do get, you can't show to children. <laughs> there's a there's a heck of a lot of stuff um, that's there. I here's here's one of the big questions, and I think this is the question that we're looking to answer mm-hmm. on this segment today. Uh, in the uh, in in the book of Exodus, uh, we we get through. You know, Moses goes back uh, to Pharaoh after having sort of talked with God, game planning with God about uh, how they're going to get the Hebrews unenslaved from uh, from Egypt. And when they go back, there are. We've all heard of the plagues. There are all the plagues. The livestock is all dead. The crops are all gone. The water is turned to blood. Uh, eventually, the firstborn child uh, of every household in Egypt dies. Then they end up losing, you know, I'm talking Egypt ends up losing, you know, well over a million people, you know, and, and they're of their enslaved workforce. Mm-hmm. and. After you know the the crossing through uh, the uh, the the Red Sea, Egypt loses basically their entire armed forces yeah. in one big splash. Yeah. Did Egypt? Now I know Egypt as a country, uh, you know, as a society, was not that big on record keeping. Mm-hmm. But you'd think that those events all happening within like a, a one month period or whatever would show up in their records somehow. Like, that seems like you don't ignore that month. That was a bad May. <laughs> yeah, that, and there, there are a couple of points to make here. One is that they, um, Egypt tended to, to keep fairly, um, not necessarily accurate, but fairly comprehensive records. However... A uh, counterpoint to that is the fact that we only have a tiny, tiny uh, fraction of all the records that were ever kept. Of course, uh, and and there is a there is a uh, what's called a uh, a bias towards particularly funerary and mortuary remains because those are the ones that tend to get sealed up and buried in dry parts of the the nation where they're more likely to be preserved, uh, and many of the records that survive only survive because maybe they are carved into rock or they are um, carved into little stones or, or survive in clay tablets or something like that. Right. Uh, it's the survival of papyrus for that long is, uh, is very, very unlikely. And particularly if we're talking about the Delta, when we get further south in Egypt, where uh, the floodplains and the and the Nile are uh, more narrow, and you have more stuff going on beyond the boundaries of that floodplain where the floodwaters would rise to, it's more likely that stuff is going to be preserved. But the delta where much of this is supposed to have been going on, it's it's rare that we find records. And, he, and we have found lots of records that have yet to be um, transcribed, that have yet to be translated, that have yet to be uh, studied. And so... I do want to make the point that there's a lot we don't know about Egypt based on on record keeping. However, back to your point, we should have noticed something about this because we have a pretty good idea of who was reigning. We have a pretty good idea of population size. We have a pretty good idea of what was going on in, in what cities based on the material remains that we do have. And this would have entirely devastated the entire society, uh, the economy the uh their food supplies this would have absolutely devastated everything there would be a very large gash in the historical record in the material record if this happened the way it is described in the biblical text and the simple fact is that we see absolutely no such data whatsoever things just seem to be uh carrying on as usual now another issue here is when we place this chronologically yeah, I was going to say you 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 were talking about the the where and the when of this. I I I don't actually know the where and the when of when this is meant to take place. Do yeah. we have a sense of that? 
There's a there's a rough window with kind of fuzzy boundaries uh, where there are folks who will argue for an early date that like the earliest I think I've ever heard is somewhere around 1450 BCE all the way down to a late date, which would put it 1250 into close to 1200 BCE. So we've got a period of about 200 to 250 years where where um, uh folks want to try to date the exodus and and they're usually they're usually moving things around within this window because they're looking for the most likely period where these things could have happened uh the biblical text is not incredibly clear and uh you have to make some judgment calls in trying to do the math to find out when we're talking about which itself assumes that the numbers and the ages and the chronologies and everything like that in the Bible are historical, which is problematic in and of itself. Um, but <clears throat> I think the the folks who come the closest or come the closest to thinking critically about this would say if this happened at all, it would have had to have happened probably 1250-ish around there. So I think the later date is uh, the most likely. That's not to say probable, but the closest we get to plausibility, I think, would be um, a later date. Okay. Yeah. And uh, but that is also not without problems because um, we still don't see these societal upheavals. We still don't see this sudden uh, the death of every firstborn child in Egypt. We still don't see the army. Uh, the armed forces being decimated. Uh, we we see none of this in right. the material remains. So not just the text, not just people writing down, dear diary, this is what happened in Egypt today, but just looking at the houses that we have, looking at the remains that have been uh, dug out of the earth, we don't see any indication of any of this having happened. Yeah, one of the things that I the, that interests me is that like, I mean, you know, I do have Cecil DeMille's Ten Commandments sort of. Th those images are seared in my brain. I mean, mm -hmm. forget Nefertiri in her gauzy dress. Uh, <laughs> I'm also thinking of like the giant structures that, that these, you know, Hebrew slaves were in the process of building. I don't know. You know, we don't know what they were actually doing at that time, supposedly. But it does seem like a whole lot of work was halted in that moment like like mm -hmm. when you lose a million strong uh workforce you'd think that even even just in you know whatever they were making whatever they were doing would stop even just that would be somehow present in the record yeah the and that, and that's we don't see we see indication that there were um a variety of different types of workers coming from outside Egypt, whether they are enslaved uh, or corvée workers. Uh, a lot of scholars think that uh, that the uh, workers who were doing this were not so much en enslaved as just locals who just had a, an annual responsibility to go dedicate so much time to the work. Uh, we do see indications of that. That doesn't however support the notion that there was this discrete kind of compartmentalized community of people who are identified as Hebrews who had grown to um to this massive size and um and we have some some records from before this time period that uh have lists of names and some of these are semitic names uh and we have uh we even have some drawings of some semitic peoples in the uh in a tomb for uh Beni Hassan uh where uh, the color is still preserved so they had um uh, pretty colorful um pieces of clothing that they were wearing but they're identified as semitic peoples and so some people and semitic in this in this case is a reference to a a language group is that so, um, yeah, so people who are speaking Semitic languages, which are going to be people from um, ancient Southwest Asia, so up the coast of, of Syria, Palestine, uh, and probably not too much further to the east, so, uh, but into the desert uh, a bit. We see in, in uh, some of the different Egyptian discussions, they, they had a few different names for these people. They called them Asiatics. 
they uh, call they have a name um, for uh, the habiru, which uh, or hapiru, which some people think sounds an awful lot like um, what could have turned into ivrit, uh, the Hebrews. Uh, there's still debate about the degree to which uh, that is the case. Uh, but we have uh, references to a bunch of different societies that come from that area that is now um, Syria, Palestine, Israel area. And so um, there were many people that spoke Semitic languages at this time. Uh, and it's even within, it's even um, workers in mines and in other places on the Sinai Peninsula who are uh, probably Semitic uh, in origin who develop, begin to develop what we now know as the Phoenician alphabet uh, by taking Egyptian hieroglyphs uh, and different forms of these hieroglyphs and basically turning them into an alphabet. So Egypt has a long history of relations, usually tense relations, but sometimes um, cooperative relations with the peoples of ancient Southwest Asia. And so it's no surprise to see Semitic names. It's no surprise to see this kind of stuff. And some people try to leverage that as evidence. These are, you know, we see Semitic names and it's like, ah, that must be the Hebrews. Well, no, it could be Moabites, it could be Ammonites, it could be Amorites, it could be uh, people from Ugarit, it could be uh, Midianites, it could be a number of different societies that uh, are doing that. Um, so yeah, we, we, don't see, we don't see evidence that points in the direction of Israelites being enslaved in Egypt. We see evidence that does not absolutely preclude the presence of enslaved Israelites in Egypt, but that doesn't necessarily say this is how it had to be. It's kind of, th this is something that, um, that kind of frustrates me about some apologetics. We have, we have data that indicates something happened or points in the direction of something happened. If we follow the data where it is leading, if we follow the data, uh, if we allow it to operate on its own terms, sometimes it points us in a specific direction. It points us to a conclusion. Other times it's ambiguous, but among the variety of different conclusions that are plausible, we could, we could say the conclusion we want falls within that range. Right. And this is what a lot of apologetics is. It's not showing that the data lead to our conclusion, but showing that the data don't preclude our right. conclusion. Saying It's possible that it happened. Yeah, it's possible. And, and there are some data that we could say it's even plausible that it happened. And so I would say it's plausible that there were... Um, people who would later be identified or would later be incorporated into the uh, the people group that we now know, know as Israel, who were enslaved in Egypt and who escaped enslavement to make their way into the northern hill country to become a part of the people known as Israel. If that happened, however, this was a very small group and the events of their escape do not resemble in any way, shape, or form whatsoever the events described in the book of Exodus. So it's certainly plausible that there is a historical core to what's going on here. But what we see described in the book of Exodus is centuries of elaboration and innovation and um, flourishes and all these things added to the text in order to make the text more useful uh, for the time period. and. You know, the the story of a people who are trapped in a foreign land, who are coming out and are going to return home, sounds an awful lot like people who are um, part of the Babylonian exile, who are in, trapped in a foreign land, who are going to be allowed to leave and return home. And so it's not to say that it's entirely mythological, but it is to say that the way the story is told is likely... Um, intended to resonate with the audience for which it is being told, which is the, uh, the post-exilic uh, audience, or yeah, I, I think the tradition of the Exodus predates that, but I think the form in which we have it now is largely attributable to the way the story would be told for um, people either trapped in exile or um, returning from exile, and and we have similar. 
uh, scholarship uh, has similar ideas about what's going on with um, with Abraham and others who are moving into a land that they have not occupied either ever or for a while, and so are have to kind of adjust. And it's a way to kind of forge a relationship with this earlier group in our own social memory. Yeah. So we're just like them. We're doing the same thing that they were doing. Here's a story that helps us think about our relationship with the God who is making this possible and what is expected of us and how we can maintain our <clears throat> our social cohesiveness and integrity. And this also is the uh, is the context for the development of all this legislation, some of which predates the Babylonian exile, but some of which also was probably uh, written in response to the Babylonian exile and the return from exile. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And so even from a literary point of view, the most likely context for the composition of the story as it has come down to us, as we find it in the Masoretic text, uh, the most likely context is the middle of the first millennium BCE, during or just after uh, the Babylonian exile. And so what we see in the data on the ground in Egypt don't really support the overwhelming majority of the details of the story. But it is certainly plausible that there is a historical core where a much, 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 on a much, much smaller level, uh, there was a group that escaped. Uh, the details of the story as they have come down to us fit a much later time period, rhetorically, literarily. Uh, there are folks who argue, well, you've got uh, a high concentration of Egyptian words in the Hebrew, loan words from Egyptian into Hebrew. So like tortilla and taco and quesadilla, those are loan words from Spanish into uh, English. And I thought you were going to say they were Egyptian and I was, my mind was <laughs> no. going to be blown. I'm giving an example of, of what's called what, a loan word or a borrowing, something yeah. that originates into another language, uh, in another language. We bring it into our own and it becomes a part of our vocabulary. Well, there are a number of words in Hebrew that are loan words from Akkadian, from Egyptian, and from other languages. And so scholars have noted there is a high concentration of these loan words in the story of the Exodus. And so some folks will argue, oh, that means that it was most likely written when they were in Egypt. No, because we can uh, give rough kind of, um, uh, not necessarily dating, but um, chronological relationships um, to the uh, when these words came into the Hebrew language. Some of them come in early, some of them come in much later. Uh, and so I, I think the most likely explanation for what's going on there is that the authors are aware of what things are coming from Egypt or sound Egyptian, and so are infusing the story with this sense of authenticity and archaism and things like that. And, and another thing to, to note is that Egypt frequently 
had close relationships with this area. In fact, King Hezekiah, we have uh, was under uh, vassalage to Egypt in the uh, late eighth century BCE. So around seven hundred BCE, King Hezekiah had um, we have these. They call them lamellic jar handles. They're um, state produced jars and and dishes and and things like that. And they have a little stamp seal on them. Um, for the king is what it means. And they include many of them and have a little Egyptian scarab on them because there were a lot of resources that were coming from Egypt based on this uh, vassalage relationship. And so there are frequent and very comprehensive points of contact between Israel and Egypt not just when they would have been uh, enslaved in Egypt. So we can account for a lot of these details that apologists will say are indications of the historicity of the Exodus in ways that don't require we just accept the historicity of the Exodus. Yeah, and and again, like those those things that could account for it, uh, for those apologetics, um, don't disprove the apologetic, but it's an it's an interesting note. Yeah, yeah, in this part of the data. Yeah, in history we're we're weighing probabilities and right. frequently what we have to consider is a whole series of concerns or questions and we're looking at what we want to try to do is maximize the probability across the board to try to come up the best theory is going to maximize probability across the board. Because if we have something that's, so, some things are plausible, a lot of things are implausible, and then a handful of things are impossible, that theory is not very strong. If we have some things that are probable, loads of things that are plausible, and nothing is impossible or, or uh, nothing is too implausible, that theory is going to be on the whole, on. Um, on balance is going to be stronger. Right. And so if we consider all of the different arguments that we have to make and all the different theories that have to come together for the Exodus to be historical, there's just not, the, it's not a strong argument. It is a very weak argument and it includes a number of things that are literally impossible. Miracles are, are literally impossible. And so the fact that, oh, we can highlight some things that are plausible that's not that's not strong enough evidence to overcome the fact that we would have to accept a bunch of things that are totally implausible or totally impossible. Right. And so on balance, I, uh, I and most scholars, the overwhelming majority of critical scholars would say the Exodus as it is told in the book of Exodus is entirely implausible. There, it is plausible that there's a historical core, some kind of little kernel of history that just grew and grew and grew as these stories were being told over the centuries that involved a small group of, uh, of people who were enslaved, who escaped, who made their way to the northern hill country and were incorporated into the people known as Israel. And we know there were peoples known as Israel around the end of the 13th century BCE. So around 1200 BCE, we have an inscription from an Egyptian pharaoh named Merneptah dating to around 1208 BCE, where he talks about uh, beating the Libyans. Uh, and you know, it doesn't say it, but I wish it said, uh, they found me. I don't know how they found me, Marty, <laughs> but they found I me. I was going to do um, a Doc Brown. I knew you were going to go there. I knew you were going to go there. But he talks about defeating the Libyans in the West. But then he talks about the um, the East, the Asiatics, and um, and regions that he defeated. And he, he mentions Israel. It says their seed is not, and this is a reference to their grain. Mm. Um, and basically that they, they devastated this group known as Israel and the determinative that accompanies that name. And the determinative is a little hieroglyph that categorizes what they're talking about is a people determinative. So it's not a state, it's not a nation, it's not a city state, it's a people. Okay. Um, and, and so this likely indicates that there was a, some kind of group, uh, that was not, uh, established as a kingdom, probably did not have a capital city or anything like that, but they were known as Israel. And, and some so, people will point to that as saying, oh, look, that's, that's Moses wandering in the wilderness. They don't have a capital yet there and try to leverage that as evidence. But this is another thing where that's, 
eh, it's possible, but the data make far more probable uh, a different explanation for this. Sure. Let, let's talk about those people because one of the, one of the things, one of the questions that I've had for a long time, um, you know, I've, I, I've, I've heard people saying that there's no, you know, that there was likely no exodus or whatever, but I don't, do we have any sense if Moses was a real person? Because Moses is an enormous figure in yeah. all three of the Abrahamic religions. Moses is just an insanely, uh, he looms over, over, you know, everything. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, it's one of the tent poles of, of, uh, ancient Judaism. I, I would say that we don't have evi evidence for the existence of a figure uh, named Moses that is anything remotely associated with the story we have in Exodus. However, there there is a piece of evidence that suggests there could be um, another historical core somewhere in there, and that's the name Moses, which um, in the text, it tries to associate it etymologically with this idea of drawing out. Uh, however, Moses is also an element in ancient Egyptian names. In fact, Tut Moses and Ramses and uh, a bunch of other um, famous Egyptian pharaohs have this element in them uh, where Moses means born of or son of or something like that. And when you have that name, you have a deity associated with it. Tut Moses, born of or son of Thoth. Ramses, born of, son of Ra, um, and so Moses so is, would, the, is the connection. Sorry, is the connection that we're making there the the S E S on the end? Is that uh, no the the M O or the, okay. the M and the S uh, and the the vowels are uh, kind of squishy because we're not exactly sure how they vocalized right okay. uh, the syllables in ancient Egyptian. We have some pretty good guesses, uh, but they can they can vary as well depending on where where these consonants are appearing in the word and how they're being used. Um, and so Moses would, if it is a name, it could be a, a legitimate Egyptian name, but it would be incomplete right. because it would mean son of. And so there's an argument that this was originally an Egyptian name and there was an Egyptian deity's name associated with it that was taken away because of embarrassment because we don't want this um, figure who looms so large, who plays such a significant role to have a pagan name, a pagan deity associated with them. So there's an argument to make that, that Moses could be an actual name of a person who came out of Egypt, okay. uh, whose name was altered to give us this incomplete Egyptian name uh, precisely because they didn't like that it would have been associated with an Egyptian deity. So that is plausible. I don't I wouldn't go so far as to say it's probable, but that is certainly plausible. And that and that's one of the pieces of evidence that I think contributes to having to take seriously the notion that there could have been something there, but certainly not as we see uh, in the text as it has come down to us and all the traditions and all the miracles and all the um, fabulous events associated with it. Yeah, it's a pretty uh it's a miracle heavy story. It is a, Very it much is so. a yeah. uh, magic laden story. Um, and we may have to get back to it and like dive into the, uh, the actual bits and bobs of what actually yeah. occurs in it. Cause it's, uh, it's a lot. There's yeah. A lot I think going on there, I think covering the, the plagues would be interesting. I uh -huh. think talking about, uh, yeah, there, there are lots of things we could cover in the well, Exodus. And also, you know, we talked about it a little bit when we were talking about, you know, the uh, the the pantheon of gods. Uh, you know, the the fact that in in that story, uh, the Hebrew god does battle essentially, or at least does like who's who's got the best tricks with the uh, Egyptian gods, and the Egyptian yeah. gods show up. They actually they actually are are part of the story. So that's fascinating. Yeah. We may have to get to that. Um, but that's a that's a story for another time. Yes, sir. Uh, in the meantime, though, chapter and verse. Chapter and verse. All right, let's do it. 
Hey, everybody, if you enjoy what you're hearing on the Data Over Dogma podcast and you want to help us ensure that we're able to continue to create this content that hopefully you think is great and that we think is great, you can help us by uh, subscribing to our Patreon. That's right. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash data over dogma, you can choose what level you want to join up at. Uh, you'll get usually early access to every to, to the show every week. Um, you, you'll get access to our patrons only content, which is, uh, you know, we talk about that, you know, each week's show, but we take we, you know, we go off into different directions. We sometimes just have fun conversations. Uh, it's just a behind the scenes look. Go to patreon.com slash data over dogma. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. We're going to pull one from the Exodus uh, because uh, we we like to keep things topical here. And we're going to go to Exodus chapter 22, uh, which is part of what's known as the covenant code. Yeah, I wanted, is- to, I wanted to start by saying that like this is... I, I was sort of like looking over this and reading through it, and I went back a couple chapters and realized that two chapters before it starts Ten with what what we call the Ten Commandments. Yeah, but like the book itself doesn't say Ten Commandments; it just no. starts listing rules, and then you go to the next <laughs> chapter, and there's way, way, way more rules, and then right. you go to the next chapter, and it's all laws. It should be like the Ninety Seven Commandments or something <laughs> like that, because it just uh, keeps going and going and going. <laughs> And right. it gets minutely specific in some cases. Yeah, yeah. And and there's a lot of repetition as well. There are over 600 commandments according to the traditional uh, enumeration of, of the commandments within Judaism. But just within the book of Exodus, we actually have several different layers of collections of commandments. And that's and that's ignoring that we also have another set of commandments in Deuteronomy, and we have other sets of commandments in Leviticus. Yeah, we're going to have um, to do a, just a Ten Commandments question yeah. mark. Uh, <laughs> oh, thing. yeah, because we've got, we've got at least three different iterations of the Ten Commandments, and they are not all the same. And, and the not only, only that, like, they're, they're not broken out easily no, in the text no. as like yeah there, this there are different a, ways this is to a count them commandment yeah yeah there are different ways to count the 10 commandments uh just in Exodus 20 uh Exodus 36 is actually the only place where it says it calls them the 10 words um in Exodus 36 and that's the closest we get to the label 10 commandments which is then transferred to Exodus 20 cuz Exodus 36 is primarily about festivals and rituals and things like that. It's not your your set of uh, moral laws. Yeah. But we digress. Yeah. Um, so back to back to Exodus 22. Exodus uh, which is is that that's what we're on, right? Yes, Exodus and, 22. So this is part of the covenant code which scholars identify as probably the earliest layer of legislation that is found in the book of Exodus. So this is something that's coming from maybe 10th, probably more likely 9th or 8th century BCE, and it's being incorporated into this growing narrative. Uh, And so these are the earliest um, layers of legislation. And in verse 29, and if you're looking in the Hebrew, um, it is uh, actually verse 28, but in virtually all English translations, it's verse 29. Uh, we have this statement, and I'll read it in the KJV just for those who um, uh, who are nasty. Uh, <laughs> Thou shalt not delay to offer the first of thy ripe fruits and of thy liquors. So we're talking about offerings, sacrifices, uh, colon, the firstborn of thy sons shalt thou give unto me. And then I'm, I'm going to briefly go into verse 30. Likewise shalt thou do with thine oxen and with thy sheep. Seven days it shall be with his dam. On the eighth day thou shalt give it to me. Yikes. So, yikes I, indeed. I'm, that, that is, I mean, if I'm reading that correctly, they just chucked something in there in the middle. Because like this whole chapter has been about like what you do if someone steals an ox and what you, you know, how... How all of this happens, it's about like livestock and stuff. And then this starts with with uh with sacrifices. And then just in the middle there, they're like, and your sons, your firstborn right. sons. That cannot mean what it seems to mean, can it? <laughs> well, that's uh 
that's the argument that a lot of folks make. Uh, to begin with, we don't have the, the traditional word for sacrifice here. Uh, we have this verb, natan, which means to give. Uh, you will give it to me. And so some people are, are arguing that that has a different, that's got to have a different nuance here. Like give to me in the sense of turn them over to priesthood service. So like what we see uh, at the beginning of Samuel with Samuel's mother promising to give Samuel to the priesthood um, if she is able to conceive a son. I think I can see where that argument might fall down, though, because uh, <laughs> generally speaking, this is just a guess. I don't think that the God of Israel wants people to give the firstborn of their sheep and oxen into priesthood. Ding, ding. So the very next verse complicates that because, uh, and in the Hebrew, it says, um, uh, which means thus you will do. In other words, do the same thing with your oxen and with your sheep. And then it repeats the, the verb natan at the very end. On the eighth day, you will give it to me. Uh, so yeah, that's natan, titno uh, li. So you will give it to me. So um, that is very clearly a reference to sacrifice. And so given that verse 30 is referencing, is referring back to, it's resuming the verb at the end of verse 29, we should understand them to be um, employed with the same sense, with the same nuance, which would indicate sacrifice. Um, and there is another passage in the Hebrew Bible that I and many others um, argue is another biblical author interpreting this passage in precisely that way. Um, so that is uh, in the book of Ezekiel. And it is uh, Ezekiel chapter 20, and it's verses uh, 25 and 26. And here we have Ezekiel is uh, going off about how you're not, um, the, the Israelites were not living up to, they were given laws, they were not living up to them. And then, uh, <clears throat> and then we have in verse 25, and uh, I'll go from the KJV again, just, just for fun. Wherefore, I gave them also statutes that were not good and judgments whereby they should not live. And this is actually contrasting. Um, the statutes and judgments that God is talking about having given at Sinai says you will live by them. And so here he's saying, I gave them also statutes and judgments whereby they should not live. And I polluted them in their own gifts in that they caused to pass through the fire all that openeth the womb, that I might make them desolate to the end that they might know that I am the Lord. And this phrase, pass through the fire, is a, uh, a colloquialism that refers to child sacrifice, offering children as burnt offerings. Uh, and so Ezekiel here, is, it looks like Ezekiel is looking back at Exodus twenty two twenty nine and trying to explain why we seem to have this commandment to sacrifice children in the covenant code. And Ezekiel's explanation seems to be, I gave you laws. Uh, but you were too busy worrying, uh, trying to live by the laws of, of your forefathers, your ancestors. Uh, and so I said, great, let's do that. And the point was to desolate you and to show you who was boss. Okay. And, and so Ezekiel's kind of saying, I gave you some good laws. You decided you didn't like them. I gave you some bad laws um, just to uh, show you who's boss. And, and there are, are scholars who have gone to great lengths to try to reinterpret this as referring to something else. Like uh, one popular argument is that the laws that were not good is a reference to the Deuteronomistic laws. We talked about how we got the ones in Exodus and we got the ones in Deuteronomy and the Deuteronomistic ones are from later. And so it's talking about how those were the ones that these authors didn't like. And, and Oh, interesting. But, the, but it's not a strong case. It rests on uh, a very thin argument that when they refer to statutes and judgments here, they must be referring some to something other than actual thou shalt and thou shalt not commandments. But uh, we see earlier in this chapter in verse uh, 18, um, I said unto their children in the wilderness, walk ye not in the statutes of your fathers, neither observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. So the reference to statutes and, and judgments is, 
um, looking back at the way they, um, like Joshua says, uh, are you going to follow the gods of your fathers on the other side of the river or the flood or whatever, or are you going to follow after Adonai? They kept returning to their ancestors' gods, which resulted in all this stuff. So, so Ezekiel is understanding Exodus twenty two twenty nine to refer to child sacrifice. Mm. But we have other approaches to this as well. In Exodus 13, for instance, we have uh, a reference to this idea of uh, giving the firstborn, but it supersedes that with a commandment to redeem the firstborn. So it's it's an odd way to think about this. Uh, like you're supposed to redeem your child so that it does not get sacrificed. It's like, why not just not have the commandment to sacrifice them in the first place. Uh, I mean, if if the point is, you know, we need a little, we need some some walking around money if you have a baby, just say, hey, you have a kid, pay a, a little bit of money as an offering to God as a thank you for allowing us to have a healthy, healthy child. No need to say, well, what if we require they sacrifice the baby and then at the last second, we pull it back and we say, no, we just want some money from you. Um, <clears throat> I mean, there is one example of that, uh, that, that yanking it back in yeah. that jumps immediately to mind. But yes, it does seem like a bad system, especially if you're going <laughs> to apply it sort of across the board. Yeah. And yet it is so firmly embedded in, in the kind of ideological historical foundations of both ancient Judaism and Christianity, the idea that a child uh, that child sacrifice is somehow baked into these traditions with um uh we have Isaac and Abraham right. uh Abraham didn't seem like this was too much of a shock uh yeah he kind of being... he kind of just goes just shrugs and goes along with it to some yeah. extent he uh really took it in stride um and but then says you know God will provide and then we have uh the uh the substitution for uh, Isaac is is offered, and then there is Jesus, who is uh, offered in sacrifice in in one um, interpretation of the significance of that story, and that's one where uh, God does not provide, so to speak. Uh, there's one interpretation is that Jesus is the 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 Lamb that is provided, so that uh, the rest of humanity doesn't have to. Uh, not be sacrificed, but at least uh, suffer in sin and die and and be punished for eternity. Yeah, and there's but a, there's in, a, but back in Exodus twenty two, that's that's still centuries away. We're yeah. So yeah, I, there, and there's a there's a great book called The Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son by a, a great scholar named John D. Levinson. Subtitle is The Transformation of Child Sacrifice in Judaism and Christianity, which talks about the role of child sacrifice in these traditions. So that's uh, that's an older book. I think it's uh, 30 years old by now from 1993. But if anyone's interested in, in a, a wonderful discussion of the fact that child sacrifice seems baked into these traditions, uh, I would highly recommend that one. I'm just, I sorry, I am still reeling about just the just that initial uh exodus commandment to uh to sacrifice your firstborn son right. to god because there's no indication that it doesn't that it applies only to one small class of the people right there's it, it i'm looking at it i looked for a while trying to figure out if this, this was just like only the the priests would have to sacrifice right. their firstborn, or only the right. this group or the elite or of some sort. But it seems like it's a blanket statement that's supposed to be about everybody. Am I wrong on that? What am I? No, no, it's uh, it's pretty straightforward. This is uh, commandments to the Israelite people, and it's embedded right within these other commandments about you know bringing your. Excuse me, bring in your oxen and your sheep and and everything like that. So yeah, there's no indication that this is kind of an isolated only for uh, for these people over here commandment. However, it it seems very likely two things. One, we have we have no material remains that attest directly to any child sacrifice in ancient Israel. Okay. Um, 
And two, it seems like, based on the literature around it, that this was very quickly reinterpreted, renegotiated in another direction. Um, yeah, but, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like it would be good for a society if every firstborn son of that society had to be, you know, chucked. And, and th but this, this raises another interesting observation. There is a related society where we do have a lot of direct physical evidence of child sacrifice. So um, in Northern Africa and Carthage, we have a Punic Phoenician settlement. And there is a, an area that uh, is, being, is frequently referred to as a tophet, which is the name of an area in Jerusalem where child, sacrifice were, child sacrifices were rumored to have happened. And so this uh, area in Carthage is, is being referred to as a tophet. They have found over a thousand burials of infant remains. And scholars have argued for a while, well, this, is, this must be uh, funerary. They're just, mm. these are infants that died in childbirth or shortly thereafter, which is something that was, was even more common anciently than it is now, far more common anciently. Right. Um, but uh, many of these burials, one, show indication of having been burnt, and two, come with inscriptions that, talk, that refer to these things as offerings. And as things that are being given to a deity, sometimes this deity is Baal, sometimes it is other deities. And there's an interesting word that is included that seems to identify the specific type of offering that it is. And um, uh, in this language, this Phoenician Punic language, very closely related to Hebrew, they did not use vowels. So the consonants are MLK, which many scholars think is the Phoenician Punic version of what we would pronounce Molech mm. or Moloch from the Hebrew Bible. Now, traditionally, that's been understood as the name of a deity in the Hebrew Bible, and we've talked about this uh, to some degree in the past. That this was this was some god of child sacrifice. Sometimes it's identified with Baal. Uh, everybody who's upset about Hollywood right now. Uh, refers to <laughs> them, uh, you know, uh, worshiping Baal and Molech. Yeah. Um, but based on these inscriptions at Carthage, it talks about how this this infant is a is a MLK for Baal, where the usage indicates that word is a noun. That word is a is a category of offering or sacrifice. Okay, that's interesting. So, yeah, so there was a, a scholar named Otto Eisfeld who, back in 1935, argued that based on on these inscriptions, if they are relevant to the the Hebrew Bible's discussions of of child sacrifice and this Moloch figure, we probably need to reinterpret that word Moloch as a reference not to a deity, but to a type of sacrifice. Uh, and so, I the tide has uh, over the last almost hundred years, the consensus has been shifting. Uh, in the direction of understanding this as uh, a reference to a type of sacrifice. And I would say the balance is probably beginning to favor that. Wow. That it's not yet an overwhelming consensus, but in the publications that I've seen over the last 10 years or so, scholars increasingly are favoring that understanding. And a wonderful book, if, uh, if anyone is interested in looking into this, and I think we've recommended it before on the podcast, is uh, uh, Heath Durell. Uh, child sacrifice in ancient Israel, where he goes into great detail uh, about these things. So what this would mean is that there was no deity named Molech, but there are references in the Hebrew Bible to children being offered as this specific type of Molech offering, uh, which, is, which is pretty horrifying. <laughs> but one thing that scholars who are looking into the child sacrifice that went on in Carthage are commenting on is that if they believed that these sacrifices would bless them in the future, uh, in a world where um, polygamy was common and where pregnancy women were spent most of their their time pregnant, if you gave up the first, in the uh, expecting that 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 would mean you would have more successful and more um, 
pregnancies and, and births in the future, that would not seem to be such an enormous sacrifice. And, and they also talk about how in the literature and in the way children are, are conceptualized in this time period, because infant mortality was so high, uh, there was not as strong a connection between the parent and the child until it had survived for a couple of months and seemed like it had a chance of, of making it into childhood, if not into adulthood. And so this is not to say they didn't care about their kids back then, but it's to say when they're weighing their, their family's survival and the odds of children surviving, the notion that sacrificing a child as a way to try to increase the odds that we'll have uh, more healthy children in the future is was not as horrifying to them as it would be to us. That makes um, sense to me. I, I, you know, I've often thought that even up until fairly recently in our own history, uh, infant mortality was just a fact of life, and it was just something that that people had to deal with very regularly. And they must have had psychologically a very different approach to it than we have. Yeah, yeah. It, if it, it was, it was probably over fifty percent back yeah. then. So if you were hoping, you know, if we are hoping to have four or six pregnancies, maybe we're lucky if two or three of them actually survive in, into adulthood. And so taking one of those and saying we're going to do this ourselves, so that maybe the deity, whoever it is, will allow more to survive in the future. That was a that was a calculation that um, very clearly was made, um, well, at least by there, people in Carthage. Isn't there uh, somewhere in I think the Exodus laws there, or maybe oh maybe it's maybe it's in Numbers that I'm thinking of, but aren't there is some discussion somewhere of sort of a baby not really becoming a, a person almost until x amount of time in after its after its birth i'm not i'm not getting to this correctly and i'm, I'm not <laughs> what well, this this is something i've i've uh, talked about in the past and particularly in within discussions about the morality of abortion and things like that right. the the child was not considered to to be uh, a person until they they drew first breath that's when life begins within the um the ideologies of the societies that produce the hebrew bible but yeah there there is indication and i don't think it's in the bible i think it's uh it's in some of the extra biblical early jewish literature where like full personhood was it was um you know it was a spectrum but full personhood was really something that was achieved a couple months after. Right. Um, just when you are through that window of greatest threat to the life uh, of the infant, that was when they were probably not considered as uh, fully a person as uh, as they were a little later down the road. And and I know it sounds kind of callous to talk about children in this way and to talk about the way parents are are thinking about their children. But uh, these are just, as, as I think you called them, just kind of um, psychological ways to deal with the stresses of the reality of survival in this time period. This is just a way to minimize the, the trauma uh, of the inevitability of losing children uh, yeah. in this time period. And so it's, it's, uh, it's not fun to talk about, but... Um, it is something that I, I think people need to understand as they look at uh, texts like Exodus twenty two twenty nine. That it's it's not justifying it; it's explaining it. It's saying this this is not something that would that you know it, it just could not be possible in this time period. It absolutely was possible in this time period. We have evidence that societies did precisely this on a large scale. And so there's no reason to say we can't, um, that this is not possible for the societies that produce the Hebrew Bible. And at the same time, we have no indication that despite, even though that law is there, we have no indication it was ever enforced or that anyone in Israel ever engaged in that. In fact, there's a good argument to make that this legislation was not widely known, was not widely enforced until we get down to around the second century BCE. Although and, it seems unlikely to me that it would make it this far to us, like that this law, that this that this uh, commandment 
would have been recorded enough that it got all the way to us without some of the people actually doing it. It seems almost impossible that it would never have happened. It's it, well, it depends on how quickly it was reinterpreted. And this is something that I talk about in my in my um, 2022 book, Adonai's Divine Images, is that if there is ambiguity in um, a term or in legislation or something like that, a lot of times it sticks around precisely because it is easily reread. Mm. And so things that we look at today, we're like, how on earth? Could Psalm 82 or some of these other passages, how on earth could they have been preserved for thousands of years and people have considered them inspired and and a part of their authoritative literature? And it's like, if you have a a way to kind of influence a reinterpretation of that verse to go from theologically problematic to theologically not problematic, that's all it needs. And then every other generation after it is like, oh yeah, that's not a problem. Hmm. Um, and so I, I don't know if if anyone ever did it. I I think it's plausible that this happened for a time anciently, but we don't have any direct evidence of it. Uh, and and another example of something that is a that is a piece of legislation, and we don't know if it ever happened, is um, uh, the Sota Numbers five, the uh, the ordeal of uh, the woman suspected of adultery. That's that's something where we see like rabbis debating about whether or not it's appropriate to involve a pregnant woman and all this kind of stuff. But we have no indication anyone ever did this, that anyone was ever put through this ordeal. Um, but it served a rhetorical function in its place in the literature uh, in which it was embedded. And, and maybe that's why it's there, to serve a rhetorical function, not necessarily something that was expected to be carried out. Well, one thing I can say with absolute certainty, I feel positive that uh, that I am in the clear to say this, even biblically. Um, uh, d- don't follow this particular yeah. commandment uh, <laughs> ever for any reason. Don't, you do not need to sacrifice even even your livestock. Don't you don't even have to do that. But definitely don't uh, sacrifice your own firstborn sons. Yeah, uh, leave them alone. They're fine. Yeah, there, there's a theory of ritual that that um, categorizes ritual as things that are what they call causally opaque. What that means is that there is no clear connection between the action and whatever the desired outcome is. And ritual and sacrifice is an example of this. We don't really have a way to show there's any connection between sacrificing animals and anything good happening. Right. Um, but, you know, and, and <laughs> this extends beyond the religious sphere into what we would consider the secular world. There are all kinds of different rituals that we engage in socially on a day-to-day basis because there are ways to show others that you, you know the rules, you're a, a, an upstanding member of society, you can be trusted, you're a good person. There are a bunch of different ways we engage in rituals to do that. Uh, but according to, to rituals theory, there these are things that are causally opaque. And so I would say that this is one that is not only causally opaque, but objectively harmful. And um, <laughs> yeah, I think, and, I think you're in the clear on that. I, yeah, I don't think yeah. many people will argue with you. Over yeah. That so if, if anyone is under the misapprehension that we are claiming this is something we should be reinstituting, <laughs> right. I don't think they understand our podcast very think, well. And I think it's okay to, yeah. Even if it is in the Bible, I think, uh, I mean, this is just another example of like one of the things that you're not, like nobody thinks that you should do this. So anyone who says, I obey all of the laws of the Bible, is a pretty good one to just point yeah. out and say, mm, yeah. you don't. And, and as I, I've said many times on um, on different social media channels, nothing is non-negotiable in the Bible. Right. Everything is negotiable. And everyone has negotiated things. And this is just an example. Everybody renegotiates this because yeah. nobody thinks this is something that is, one, is of God, two, has any value to us today. Uh, and so, yeah. So if but, someone gets legalistic with you about like, ah, uh, you know, you, your, your view on <laughs> X, Y, or Z is non-biblical and therefore blah, blah, blah. You, you just ask them when, how, they, how they did sacrificing their firstborn. That it's it's pretty low hanging fruit, but <laughs> but yes, anytime someone like this is the word of God, you got to do it. It's like, mm, what do you think about this? Right. Um, that's always something that that will have been renegotiated away. Yeah. But I think the case is strong. 
It, it, I would call it the academic consensus, uh, even though it's probably pretty close, that uh, this was originally a commandment for Israelites to sacrifice their firstborn children. And specifically, Woof. their firstborn sons. Yes, that's yeah, that's rough. Uh, but there you go. It's 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 there in black and white on the papyrus. There's nothing we can do about it at this point. <laughs> well, uh, th- thanks for that, Dan. Uh, what a horrifying uh, little thing, little jaunt into uh, into the laws. Uh, if you friends at home listening, viewing us uh, on the YouTube's or in your in your various pod blasters, if you would like to become a part of making this show go please feel free to become one of our patrons over on patreon.com uh, slash data over dogma if you'd like to write into us about anything uh, you can reach us at contact at data over and uh we'll talk to you again next week bye everybody hope you have a good week Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.